2 Samuel chapter 8. And uh, glad to have everyone out. For those who uh, haven't been here for, for just a little bit, I'll give you a, a little bit of an update on where we're at. We've been going through and studying the, uh, the kings in Israel. And we've started out from uh, Samuel whenever they were demanding a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And God gave them the, the desire of their heart. He gave them uh, King Saul, a man like unto them. And we are looking a lot at the lives of these men. And the reason why is because these men were, uh, were God's men in the nation. They were um, God's representative. They were leaders. They had an effect on the people that was around them. And in many ways, we can relate to it. We may not be kings of a nation, but we are here to be a, a witness, to be a light, as we talked about on Sunday, to be ambassadors for Christ. And the way that we live our lives, the decisions that we make, has an effect on the people that's around us. And as we look at these men's lives that are somewhat under the microscope, uh, we're seeing their individual lives, their decisions, and the way that it affects uh, the way their walk with God affects the people around them, affects the nation and things like that. And so we saw that uh, Saul had a wonderful opportunity and he blew it. Yeah. Uh, he decided to uh, allow his, uh, I guess in a way, allow his heart to lead him. Right. And he went his own way. He uh, made several carnal fleshly decisions. He was able to reason it out, make it appear good, but uh, his motives shine through and... Uh, he ended up making some unwise decisions. He messed up a lot of things. And so anyway, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Saul was dead on the battlefield, and David ended up coming to the throne of Judah. But he was anointed as king very young in his life. And what we saw throughout David's life now is that David had a promise. He had God had made a plan for him. God had shown him a direction. He said, this is what I have for you. And then David had to wait about 20 or 25 years to see it actually happen, to see it actually take place. And if we would have been David, we would have grown very impatient. We would have thought God either messed up or lied to us or that we got something wrong or something along those lines. And there were some times that David's faith faltered. There was the, the time that he said, I will one day die at the hand of King Saul, even though God had said clearly that he wouldn't. But anyway, uh, David, over a long period of time, was being molded and was being shaped, and God was guiding him and was directing in this. And so anyway, as I said, he, he took about 20 years for uh, God to bring about his plan to fulfill his promises, and all along he was a, an example to us of trusting and waiting while God is ordering our steps, while he is bringing things to pass. And so what we do is we walk with God, we behave ourselves wisely, and in time we will be able to prove what is that good and that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right. And that's what David is finally getting to do. He is finally on the throne. He has went past just being king over uh, Judah, but now he is king over all of Israel. Right. And something I may not have brought up so far, but uh, there's plenty of times that David could have went off the rails, oh, yeah. Right. There are plenty of times that David could have made the choice that I'm not waiting anymore. I'm going to uh, step out and I'm going to make this happen. Right. I'm going to go and I'm going to kill Saul and I'm going to take his throne. And could have completely 
short-circuited all of God's plans, right? Mm-hmm. Or he could have went and uh, become a mercenary for the Philistines. He was there for a while, right? Yeah. And completely turned against Israel and say, hey, I don't want to be around the Israelites anymore. I don't want what's going on. I want to go with the Philistines. They're treating me better than Saul is. And he could have abandoned it that way. And so there's different decisions that he could have made that would have completely um, wrecked God's plan. Mm-hmm. So I want to be careful that we're not fatalists in this, that uh, some people go to the idea that God has predetermined what's going to happen and whatever he has decided is going to happen no matter what. No, he's given us a free will. We can either partner with him, we can either uh, go his way, or we can go our own. We can either enjoy his will and his plan, or we can go out and get ourselves in a mess by following our own desires and our own wants. And that might sound like it's a, uh, a little extreme, but the truth is if we do anything outside of God's will, if we're going in a direction outside of what he asked for us, we will get in a mess. Oh, yeah. Because God's way is good, it is best, it is right, and anything less than God's will and his way is going to be inferior. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's going to be negative consequences because he does know what's right. And so anyway, last week we talked about how uh, David did well spiritually and he did well publicly, but we're going to see today that he didn't do so well in his personal life. And that's something strange about David as we go through and we look at him, and he is a strong leader. He is going through, he's behaving himself wisely. He's being attacked by King Saul. He's running in the, the wilderness, and he has opportunities to go and act on his own and to attack Saul or send somebody else to do it. And over and over and over again, he is publicly behaving himself very well. He is handling himself well publicly. Mm-hmm. Spiritually, he, I mean, he's writing psalms, he is praying, he is uh, walking with God, and he has a great relationship with God. Uh, what we saw last week is he was bringing the ark of God into uh, Jerusalem. He says, I want God, the symbol of God's presence in our capital city. I want it to be central, and I want to unite the nation of Israel in our love and our uh, worship of God. That's what he wanted to do, and so he was leading the people to God and leading them to a holy life or trying to. Now, the first time he messed up a little bit, he tried to do the things of God in a worldly way. He tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in the ox cart like the Philistines did, right? Right. And so he tried to worship God. He tried to serve God in a worldly way. He was reproved for it. He was also shown how that it is a serious thing to uh, be dealing with God and with leading God's people, right? right? And so after he... He learned that lesson. He came back. He did it right. He brought the ark in. Then he desired, he wanted to build the temple, right? And so he's wanting to point the people to God. He's wanting them to serve God. He is a great leader publicly. He's a great leader religiously, right? But his personal life is greatly lacking, okay? And so anyway, uh, that's what we kind of finished out with last week was him bringing the uh, ark in, or not the ark, bringing the desire to build a temple before the Lord, and the Lord uh, said no. He refused to allow David to build the temple. He said, you are a man of war. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I said last week is if David would have been uh, the one to build the house of God, to be the one that built the temple, then God would be identified with David. And God would be identified with David's wars and his conquerings and his conquests and all the murder and killing and all the pagans around would have seen the God of Israel, 
not as being a God of love or a God of mercy, but a God of warfare, a God of vengeance, a God of death. Right. And so God says, I don't want to be identified as that. I don't want you to build the, the temple, but I'm going to have your son to build it. Mm-hmm. And God actually gives David uh, what we call the Davidic covenant. And so he promises him, he promises him a, a house, a family. You're going to have a posterity after you. He promises him a throne. You're going to have an authority. He promises him a kingdom. You're going to have a, a nation that you're going to reign over. And he also promises him that that kingdom is going to last forever. Right. So there's not going to be an end to it. In this, we're seeing that uh, David's family is going to be the one that the Messiah is going to come out of. Yeah. Uh, the lion of the house of Judah, right? right? Of the house lineage of David. And so all of these promises are given to David. And instead of David sorrowing over God's no, David instead is thankful for all of God's blessings and he trusts God's plan in his own life. And so coming back to comparing ourselves a little bit, David had something he really desired to do. He said, this is a way I'm going to serve God. I'm going to worship him. God's going to be so pleased with me. The people's going to be so pleased with me. I know this is a good thing. And then God says, no. And that's where we would have got hung up at. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Whenever God says no, then we get upset. Right. But God says no, and then David is still able to look and say, okay, God has blessed me in all of these areas. God has done all these things for me. He has made these promises. And so the last half of uh, chapter 7 is David's worship and prayer of him uh, going through and praising God for who he is, for his abilities, for his knowledge, for the things that he is doing. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 7 says, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so he has been told no by God, but he is giving God the glory because he realizes uh, he is God and David is not. Right. right. And that's a good place for us to get to, to where even whenever the things that we have prayed for, sometimes we get a no answer, but God is good anyway. And if we would take, if we would acknowledge God has blessed us far more than what we deserve. And so rather than pouting over the nose, we should be uh, glorifying him over all the places that he has worked in our lives. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so today what we're going to do, I'm going to uh, kind of go quickly through a couple chapters here to get to where I want to be. Okay? To get to the thought I want to get on today. And so we've kind of been covering this quickly. It's not a, a verse-by-verse study but more of an event by event or trying to just get some of the the main lessons, I guess we could say, from the lives of these kings. And I'm staying in David a little bit longer than I want to, but the Bible has a lot to say about King David. And his life offers up a lot of lessons because the Bible is so transparent about David. Mm -hmm. Uh, The good and the bad and the ugly in David's life, it's all there. But up until now, much of what we have said has been to David's praise, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we come to chapter number eight, David has taken the throne. It has been established to him. He is fully the ruler of Israel and he has Israel's backing. Okay. He has brought in the Ark of the Covenant. He has uh, been given the Davidic pro- uh, covenant, right? Mm-hmm. He is leading the people well and restoring the people's worship their relationship with God in many ways. 
he's doing these things in Israel. And so after David has waited for some 25 years to take the throne, he now has the throne. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, if there's anything in your life that you have waited a long time to see happen and then it finally happens, that's a great place, right? That's an exciting thing. And so this is what happened with David. There was a long period of time, a long buildup. Will it ever happen? It won't ever happen. And discouragement and uh, uh, insecurity and unsureness and all these things going on in David's life. And then now he is finally on the throne. He is sitting there as the king. He is seeing victory after victory. He's accomplishing things. He is glorifying God. He is unifying the nation. Things are going well for David. And if you contrast that with the time that he spent hiding in the cave and the time he spent running from Saul, the time that he spent in uh, Philistine territory in fear and pretending to be insane to get away from the king, right? There is a huge difference between where he is now and where he used to be. And so God has brought him to a place of great victory. When we come to chapter number eight, I'm not going to read it uh, for sake of time. This isn't where I'm wanting to to land on really. But in chapter number eight, it's talking about all of David's conquests. He's going through all of the land that uh, the Israelites have failed to conquer, uh, the land that they have lost to the Philistines and some of the other enemies around them, the land that Saul has lost. And he's going and beating up on the ones that's been beating up on them. Mm -hmm. He's going out and getting rid of the enemies they should have gotten rid of a long time ago. He's reclaiming land that was lost, and he is claiming land that was never gotten to begin with. Okay, Because God had given the nation of Israel a lot bigger area of land than what they have ever claimed. And so David is going to conquer that land. He's going and beating this, this group and this group and this group. And then there are some that's coming to him and allying themselves with them with him. And it's not like an equal partnership that we're coming in and we're going to serve together. They are bringing themselves under David and basically becoming uh, voluntary uh, servants to David. Mm-hmm. They're saying we're seeing David conquering everyone, so we want to come and submit to him rather than have to fight with him. And so he is uh, gaining ground, he's defeating, he is bringing in great amounts of treasure that he's dedicating to God and to the treasury, preparing to build the temple whenever Solomon gets the go-ahead so he can build the temple, right? And so he's stockpiling these things, he's getting things ready, and he's becoming rich, he's becoming powerful, Uh, he is becoming respected in the region, he is extremely successful, and he is secure on his throne As we come through chapter number eight, down at verse number six, at the end of verse number six, it says, and the Lord uh, preserved David whithersoever he went. God is blessing him and protecting him in all these battles he's facing. Uh, Verse number 14, and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. Verse 15, and David reigned over all Israel and David executed judgment and justice unto all of his people. And so that's the idea of him coming in as a, as a ruler, as a leader, as a judge over the people and causing righteousness to prevail. He is causing the people to submit to God's rules, to God's laws. Whenever it talks about him uh, executing judgment and justice unto all of his people, he is bringing them under God's commands, Right. right? And so things are going extremely well in David's life. He has gotten the victory. He is the one 
that's now he's living the dream that he has dreamed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now he's still fighting battles. He's still going out and warring against these, but everywhere he goes, he's getting the victory. No one can stand before him because God is fighting those battles. And for so long, he had felt like the loser. For so long, he had been on the run. For so long, he had been waiting, and now all that's behind him, and it's going from victory to victory, success to success, strength to strength in David's life. And so he's winning all these battles, and now he's getting to the the payoff for his faithfulness. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 9, it says, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And David is reaping that promise. He didn't grow weary in well-doing, and now he is reaping because he didn't faint. Okay, so that's where he's at in all of this. And then when we come to chapter number 9, it's the story of David and Mephibosheth. And I love the story of David and Mephibosheth, but it's not really the topic that we're on at the moment. It's not really the topic of the kings. But what happens in chapter number nine is David has a time of peace. He has a time of victory. He gets settled in on the throne and he has the opportunity to think back over his life. And he remembers the promises that he made years prior. Now, this would have been some seven to 10 years prior to this, uh, maybe even more than that. And he remembers, I promised Jonathan, that whenever I became king, I would show show mercy and kindness to his family. But Jonathan's dead. Saul's dead. Jonathan's brothers are dead. Most of his family is dead. David can't find anyone of the house of Saul that's still alive. And so he sends out a search, and there is a son of Jonathan that whenever they heard that Jonathan and Saul were dead, that his nurse took him and ran away with him and he fell somehow, he got injured and he became lame in both of his feet. So he was crippled. He was hiding out in Lodabar. He uh, had very little to sustain himself. He was poor, he was crippled, he was hiding, he was fearful. And David came looking for him. And he says, you're going to become as one of my children. You're going to sit at my table. You're going to eat my food and I am going to take care of you. And the reason I like the story of Mephibosheth is it is a picture of salvation where David is in the place of Jesus. Mephibosheth is in the place of us. We are broken because of a fall that was no fault of our own, right? Because of Adam's fall. We are, uh, we are poor. We are uh, broken. We are doing without. We are hiding out because of the condition that we're in. And God comes seeking for us. Lord comes seeking for us desiring to make us part of his family to provide for our needs to take care of us. And so that's what happened with David and Mephibosheth. And what that teaches us as we're looking at David's story here is David is remembering his promises. Mm -hmm. David is a man of integrity. He is, even after his successes, he is still remembering these promises and these people uh, along his way getting there. He didn't let it go to his head whenever he became king. And so he said, I'm going to show kindness to Mephibosheth. And in our modern day, in our way of thinking, we don't understand the extent of this, but Mephibosheth would have had a claim to the throne. In a way, Mephibosheth would have been competition. And the reason why Jonathan begged for David to show mercy and kindness to his household was that the normal mode of operation 
was that whenever a new king came in, he killed all the family of the previous king. So Mephibosheth should have died. Okay, so by their cultural standards, he was worthy of death, but David made him part of the family, right? And so that, that's part of that picture that I'm talking about here. But this is how David is fulfilling his promises even to his dead friend. Yeah, He's living in integrity. He is not living in fear. Saul was trying to get rid of anyone who could have a claim to the throne, right? Right. David says, God put me here. God will sustain me here. I don't have to worry about Mephibosheth or anybody else. I can be kind even to who would normally be my enemies. And so that's how he's living. He's confident in the place that God has put him at. Now, if we continue following through with the story of Mephibosheth, he comes back up later on whenever there is the rebellion against David and David has to flee. And uh, Mephibosheth's servant says that uh, Mephibosheth stayed behind to try to Uh, claimed the throne, and it was all a lie. Y'all remember that story? Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyways, the servant lies about Mephibosheth, and David says, okay, I'm going to take half of what you have, and I'm going to give it to your servant. He's going to strip it away. It's no longer a picture of of the perfect Savior, of David being the perfect Savior, but of Mephibosheth being the grateful son, Mm -hmm. the grateful servant. And so Mephibosheth acknowledges and says, uh, Me and my father's house were all but dead men until you came. And if it wasn't for you, David, we would have already perished by now. We would have nothing if it wasn't for you. Do whatever seems right in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so he's a picture at that time of whatever we go through, we look at God and we realize all we have is because of him. And so no matter what comes up in our lives, even the seeming unjust situations that we come into, we still give God the glory and allow him to do whatever he sees fit. Okay? Kind of like Job, whenever he says, Lord gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Mephibosheth in the second side, in the second part of it. And so that's that's the story of Mephibosheth. And I don't want to get bogged down there because that's that's not our focus today. Uh, we're looking at, at David. And so David is going from strength to strength. He is uh, a shining star in all of this. We come to chapter 10, and David has a friend, uh, a friend that was the king of the Ammonites. And they have a mutual respect for one another, even though they're maybe normally would be like uh, enemies as far as kings go, right? But they had a respect between each other. They had a good relationship with each other. But the king dies and his unwise son takes the throne. And David wants to send a uh, he wants to send some of these servants down to pay his respects to his friend. Yeah. His friend has died. He's going to send some servants down, probably send some gifts, and show his respect to the king that has just died. But the son's advisors say David can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. That David is just coming down here, and he's going to come and. Uh, spy on you. He's going to come and fight against you. And so don't trust him. He doesn't actually want to come and pay his respects. He's just using that as an excuse to gather intelligence to come and fight against you. And so they actually misjudge David's motives. They misjudge his integrity. And so what we've been seeing leading up to this is David acting honorably, behaving himself wisely, getting victories, proving himself to be valiant and to be honorable, right? 
And then even though he has all of these evidences, all of this proof, he has done so well, there are still people who will make false accusations against him. There are still people who don't like him, still people who are going to get it all wrong. Yes. And what they end up doing is they mistreat the servants. They shave their beards off, which was a shame to a Jew, and they cut off their garment to where their butt is hanging out. There's no better way to put it than that. I mean, their backside is exposed, okay? And so they do this to humiliate them, to shame them, and then they send them home with a bad sunburn, I guess. I don't know. And so they send them home that way, and they, they, I guess they send someone, a messenger ahead, to tell David what happens. David says, stay in Jericho for a little while till your beards grow out. And by the way, here's some clothes, right? Mm-hmm. And whenever the king, this foolish son, realizes, uh-oh, I messed up, I've just kicked a hornet's nest, basically, instead of him going to David and apologizing, rather than him getting it right, he goes out and hires the Syrians and says, come join me and fight against David. And David doesn't initiate any of these battles. He doesn't initiate any of these wars. They come against David And God gives David the victory against both of these groups. It was a battle that shouldn't have ever been fought if it wasn't for this foolish king and him misjudging David's character. But in spite of all of these things, God is still fighting for David. And in the end, David wins. The Lord says, a vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, right? And so in the end, David is exonerated. David is proven to be just and to be right, and this other king acts foolishly and gets beat. And God uses the entire situation to bring about victory over a couple more enemies of Israel, a couple more that have caused problems for the nation of Israel, and it's further expanding David's victory. The reason I bring all of this out is for us as Christians No matter how well we try to live for God, there's going to be times that we're going to fall on one side or the other of this. Either we're going to misjudge people or we're going to be misjudged by people. And we we have no control over how people treat us or what people do to us. But whenever people misjudge us, the best thing that we can do is make sure that they are wrong. Whenever people are making accusations against us, we need to be living in such a way that there is no grounds to those accusations. Mm-hmm. And it comes back to what we've talked about with David over and over again, that he behaved himself wisely. Right. He handled himself well. And so there were no grounds for his accusation that David was being uh, deceitful or underhanded because David had behaved himself wisely all along, right? Yeah. But in those times whenever we have misjudged someone else, don't double down on it and do something stupid like this guy did. Instead, go and make it right. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge lesson for us from David's life. No matter how well you live your life, no matter how godly you are, there's going to be times that you're going to mess up or other people are going to try to mess you up. Yeah. But on either side, do what's right. right. Okay? And so anyway, that brings us to the place where I want to be today. And like I said, I'm just going to I just hop through those chapters quickly just to get an idea of what's there. And the theme all along and what we've looked at on this first half is David is excelling. David is victorious. David is doing well. 
until we come to chapter 11. Right. And so he has uh, been doing well politically. He has been doing well spiritually. But now we come to his personal life. Mm -hmm. And so in chapter number 11, I'm going to read the first few verses of this. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture, but we're going to be looking at a king's weakness. And in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reba, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And excuse me. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman and said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And he sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the Hittite. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And so anyway, we'll stop there for right now. But David has been successful. David has had victories. He has had uh, everything going his way. He is established as the king. He has won against all of his enemies. He subdued all the, the nations that are around him, and things are going good for David. But as I said earlier several times, he has trouble with his personal life. Uh, he has a weakness, and David's weakness is women. Okay, I think that's a common thing among men, isn't it? And so his weakness is women. We know Solomon, that was his weakness as well, right? It runs in the family. And so we've already discussed how uh, David was taking multiple wives, and his taking multiple wives gave him multiple problems. That later on there was going to be uh, jealousy and fighting between his sons, and there was going to be sons taking advantage of daughters. There's going to be all kinds of messed up stuff going on in David's house because he chose to have multiple wives, right? And so there's always going to be chaos. There's always going to be problems that come as a result of that. But with David here in this issue in his personal life, his issue with women, uh, we see that all people have a weakness of some sort. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how long we've been saved, how long we're walking with Christ. We all have weaknesses. We all have different areas that we're going to struggle with. And David's story is a huge reminder of us, a reminder for us to know what our weakness is and guard against it. In Proverbs chapter number 25 and verse 28, it says a man who doesn't keep his spirit is like a city without walls. That's a paraphrase. But he's saying basically, if you can't control your feelings, your emotions, that's your spirit then it is as if the city has no defenses. 
he is going to fall prey to the enemy. Okay, this is what happens with David is that he had uh, a weakness that he didn't guard against. He didn't protect against it. He didn't make uh, a provision to protect him against it. And it ultimately caused a multitude of troubles in his house. In uh, Romans chapter uh, 13, verse 14, it says, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust thereof. And so that is a an instruction for us to be careful because our flesh lusts. There is desires that we have. There are weaknesses that we have. And we have to be careful that we are cutting off every avenue they have to get to us. We are putting up roadblocks. We're not making any provision for those things to come around because they will trip us up. And if we think that we are above it, if we think that we are stronger than that, we are foolish. The Bible says, take heed when you think that you stand, lest you fall. And this is what happened to David, is that he had prospered so much, he had been so successful, he had gotten to this place where he clearly had God's blessing on his life, and he felt as if he was untouchable, right? Why else would it be that David would send after another man's wife and not just another man, Uriah, yes, he was a Hittite, he wasn't a Jew, but he was one of David's mighty men. If you look at the list, and I believe it's in First Chronicles, Uriah the Hittite is one of David's best soldiers. But David believes that he can go spend some time with her, send her back home, and this is never going to have any fall or any uh, any bad repercussions. There's not going to be any negative consequences for this because he's the king. He's David. How could this possibly go wrong? And the answer is it goes wrong in every way possible, right? One of the first steps that we find in this is that in verse number one, it says, uh, let's see here. At the time when the kings go forth to battle, so that gives us the idea, the expectation, what was supposed to happen. David was supposed to go to battle, right? That was where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be in the front of his people. He was supposed to be leading his armies. But if you come down to the end of that verse, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. This is where we begin getting in problems is whenever we get too confident or we get too comfortable or we get too proud that we think that we're okay with not being where we should be. When we start allowing things to creep in, whenever we start saying, okay, I know I should, but I should be going forth to battle, but I'm going to stay home. Joab can handle it. And I'm not going to make any direct applications or anything like that, but we all understand the, the principle of this. Whenever we start getting careless in our lives and not being where we need to be or what we need to be, and we start letting go, we start letting back, we start becoming reckless, right? Because we think that we can handle it, we think that we're okay. And I think that David believed that he was invincible at this time, right? I'm strong enough, I'm tough enough, I can handle this. And he put himself in a place where he shouldn't have been, and it caused him to go into something he shouldn't have been doing, right? 
And so that's what happened to him. He wasn't where he should have been. Now, the second thing that we find in verses two through four, he goes out in the evening time. His palace is up above all the other houses around. And where typically people would be taking baths would be up on their roof. They would have a railing around their house. And for the most part, it would be private, except for if you're the king up above everyone else looking down. Right? And so Bathsheba did nothing wrong. She did what was normally done at that time. And in that place, she went out in the evening. She went out to take her bath. And David gets up there on the roof. And he begins to look around his kingdom. And she catches his eye. Now, whenever he saw Bathsheba bathing over there, what should have been his response? To turn around. We look at Joseph as an example whenever uh, Potiphar's wife kept coming after him, that whenever she came and took him by the garment, got him in a compromising position, it says that he turned, he fled, and he got himself out. He got away from that. But whenever David saw Bathsheba, he lingered. He looked, he lingered, and then he took after her, right? He allowed it to stay longer than he should have. So instead of fleeing, he was looking, and then he started thinking on it. He started uh, rolling around the possibilities in his mind, and he thought, I've got a plan. There's no way I'm going to get caught. I'm the king. I can do this. And he sends a servant. By the way, the more people you involve in your sin, the more places you've got to get caught. Right? But he sends a servant, goes and gets her, even though he knows that she's married, knows that she's not his, and that he's got enough wives already. He goes, takes her, they spend their time together, he sends her back to home, and treats her basically like a common harlot. And so, after he sends her home, everything's good. He had his fun, he got away with it. No problems whatsoever, right? until we come down to verse number five, and she's pregnant. There's a verse in the Bible that says, be sure your sins will find you out. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. So that's what happens to David. And so we, we have to be careful in our lives because there's a lot of things that we can't keep from coming across our eyes or our ears or our minds. Just going through life, there's going to be thoughts that come through your mind and you're going to say, where in the world did that come from? right? There are going to be things that you see that you know is not right for you to be looking at, but the problem comes in whenever you choose to linger, whenever you choose to consider, whenever you stay too long and begin to rolling these things around in your head, and whenever it starts coming up into your mind and you start formulating ways and rationalizing things, then that leads us to sin, right? The Bible tells us that whenever lust conceives, it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. And so this is what happens in David's life. And because of his confidence, because of all of his success that he had, he felt entitled, he felt invincible, and then there's consequences. She's pregnant. Uriah's been away at war. His secret's going to get out. Uriah's going to come home. His wife's going to be pregnant. He's going to want to know who the father is. It's going to come out it was David that was the father. And David is going to look bad in front of all the people for going out and stealing his soldiers' wives while his soldiers were fighting for him. So now that begins the process of lies and cover-ups. 
There's an old saying, what a what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. Anyone ever heard that? Very much so. And so David begins to see that he is in trouble. And kind of like his enemy that we talked about a little bit ago being foolish and doubling down on his problem rather than rectifying it right away, that David... Instead of owning up to it, instead of David saying, okay, I messed up, I shouldn't have done this, instead of him repenting, he hatches a plan. And his plan that we read about is he said, if I sin for Uriah and make it as if I'm just inquiring of him being one of my good soldiers and say, Uriah, how's the battle going? How's, how's Joab doing since I'm not there to check on him? Give me a report. And he takes the report from Uriah, sends him with food, sends him home and says, surely he's been out fighting. He's been battling. If I send him home, he's going to spend some quality time with his wife and everything is going to be fine. And he's going to think the child that's conceived belongs to him. And so he thinks the plan is perfect. It's going to work out with no problem, except for Uriah. It has a, a better, stronger character than what David does. And he says, Joab and all my fellow soldiers are off in battle and are off fighting. I'm not going to go home and sleep in my bed and spend time with my wife while they're out there going through all of that. And so he sleeps at the gate. He camps out with the servants. And David says, ah, I messed up. So he says, stick around another night, Uriah. Come here. I've got a feast. I've got a banquet. If I get you drunk, then you're going to be a lot less likely to keep up with your uh, your principles, your uh, your high standards and values that you have, and you'll go home drunk and you're going to spend time with your wife and the cover-up will work this time. And Uriah, even when he's drunk, still doesn't do it. Okay? So what has happened with David's life so far? David is at the place of strength and victory and prosperity. He didn't go where he was supposed to be. That put him in a place to see things he wasn't meant to see. He spent too long looking at those. He began to lust after them. He went and partook of things that were forbidden from him to have, right? And now he is in such a big mess. He's in too deep, and he's trying to find some way to get out of it. And so David has fell far from being the man of God that is beating all of the enemies to where now he's beating up himself, right? So as a leader, as a public figure, as a religious leader, everything looks good, but his personal life, complete disaster, right? And so anyway, as he is engaging in his lies and his cover-up, he gets uh, Uriah drunk, right? Because if he can get other people involved in sin, he's going to feel better about his own. Isn't that how it usually goes? Or people get in sin, uh, there is uh, the same misery loves company. And so if I can get other people sinning, I don't have to feel so bad about being in sin. That's kind of where the world's at right now, where they're promoting sin so much, they're promoting, promoting all these wicked lifestyles and that kind of thing. Because if they can make it normal, if they can make it common, then we don't have to feel grieved by it anymore. 
But anyway, going on with this. Um, whenever Uriah doesn't fall into his plan, he says, well, the only thing that I can do then is I have to have Uriah killed. This is Uriah that's been a faithful soldier since he was in the caves in the wilderness. This is Uriah that has uh, put his life at jeopardy for David's sake. And David says, I'm in too deep. I've got to clear my name. I can't let this be found out. And so he trusts Uriah so much, he gives Uriah his own death sentence, knowing that Uriah won't read it. And Uriah takes his own death sentence, delivers it to Joab, and the instructions are, put him in the hottest part of battle, retreat from him so that he dies. And Joab reads it, says, boy, David has messed up this time. He thought I was bad. You think Joab lost a lot of respect for David when he read that letter? And so anyway, Joab listens. He obeys orders, retreats from Uriah. Uriah gets hit by one of the archers that shoots from the wall. Uriah dies. David gets the news. He brushes it off and says, well, war happens. You know, people die. And he goes on about his life. And to look like the benevolent ruler, the benevolent king, one of his best soldiers has just died, and he takes in the widow to take care of her. And he marries Bathsheba. And in David's mind, it has all worked perfectly. Nobody knows. There's a couple people. Joab knows about the cover-up. The servants that went and got... There's a few people that know. But by and large, he has saved face in front of all of the people. But here's the thing God knows. God knows. And so he's married to Bathsheba. He brings her in as his whatever number wife. I don't know that the Bible gives us a definite, definite number of how many wives David had. And David goes about the next couple months, it seems like, as if he has put this behind him. And sometimes the delay in consequences for our sins makes us think we got away with it. Whenever we're doing these things, sin always has a cost. It always does. But a lot of times because the payment is delayed, we think that we've got away with it. And so anyway, David is going about, he's preparing for his and Bathsheba's child to be born, another uh, strapping young son maybe to, to fill up his quiver here. And then the prophet Nathan, which David is very familiar with, comes and we're, we're I think we're familiar with chapter 12 with the story, but Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, I've got a story to tell you. And David says, oh goody, I could use a story. And he says, well, it's about a traveler and a sheep. There was a traveler that was going about and he had uh, he stopped off at this guy's house and the guy was required to show hospitality, but he didn't want to feed the traveler his own sheep. So he went to his neighbor's house and took the pet sheep that his children treated like a sibling, like their own child there. And he took their pet sheep, slaughtered it, and fed it to the traveler that came through. And David was incensed. This man had flocks and herds, had all these things. He could have easily used one of his many sheep to feed this man but he went and killed their only lamb, their little pet lamb. How cruel could he be? How heartless could he be? And David basically signs his own death sentence and says that man deserves to die for what he did. David is raging. 
And Nathan looks at David, and I would like to see the replay of this one of these days. I'm thinking in heaven there's going to be like big screens and we can watch replay like, you know, binge watch Netflix and all these Bible stories that we've seen in the past. But Nathan looks at David and he says, you are the man. You're the one that did that. Uriah had his one wife that was beloved of him. And you have all these wives. You could have any woman you want. And yet you came and you took his wife and you killed him. And it wasn't until Nathan put it in perspective that David realized how badly he had messed up. And isn't that the way that sin works? One sin leads to another sin. A small sin leads to a big sin. David shirked his responsibility, right? He lusted after a woman. He committed adultery. And before you know it, he committed murder. Escalated quickly, right? And that's what sin does. If we don't take care of it quickly, it builds, it grows, it gets worse. And so David finds himself at this place that he never thought that he would be. He has lied to God, he has murdered, he has committed adultery, he has done all of these things, and he has done this as a king before all of the nation when he is supposed to be a representative of God and supposed to be the one that is judging in righteousness over them. Remember that verse earlier? And I can just imagine what a punch to the gut it would have had to be whenever Nathan says, thou art the man. And so as I was saying there a minute ago, this is what happens with us. Whenever we allow sin to come into our lives, before we know it, it has taken us further than we wanted it to, further than we ever intended it to. It's going to end up costing much more than we ever expect that it will, right? And it's going to cause us to do things that we never thought that we would do. But as I said, sometimes we are ignorant uh, to what we have done, how serious it is, and we have a way of excusing our sins. We have a way of painting them as if they're not so they're not so bad. They're not so big. They're not so important, right? And then whenever you have somebody like Nathan that comes in and he paints the picture and he exposes it for what it is, and David's like, Oh my goodness, it am I really that horrible? Did I really do all those things? And Nathan says, You are the man. And David has already admitted he is worthy of death because of what he has done. And David repents. He says, yes, I've messed up. Yes, this is horrible. I didn't realize it. I don't know how you do all that without realizing it. But anyway, after he repents, Nathan says, God has forgiven you, but there are still consequences. He says, you're not going to die, even though you've already judged yourself worthy of it. You're not going to die. But the baby is. The baby is going to die because it is going to be a symbol. It is going to be uh, an outward uh, reminder of what you have done to all of the nations if it lives. And it's going to give the other kings, the other nations, a means to mock, to blaspheme. Okay? He says your sin is going to be a constant reminder and it's going to cause people Uh, to associate me with the wickedness that you've done. And so the baby is going to die. And in addition to that, there is going to be constant turmoil in your house. A sword will not depart from your household. 
And we see as you go through the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, the rest of King David's reign, it is just a record. If you go from uh, chapter 12 forward, it is a record of the consequences of what David did here. I mean, if you just flip through and you look at the headings of the things that's going on, you have Amnon, his son, raping his daughter. You have Absalom getting revenge. You have Absalom being cast away, and then he comes back. He tries to uh, take over the throne. He runs David out of town. Then Absalom is killed because of what happens. Shimei curses David. Uh, you have Absalom. You have Absalom dies. You eventually have uh, David returning to the, the nation. Yeah, he was a pretty boy. But, but you have all of the fallout chapters after chapters after chapters of the consequences of the fallout for the sin that David did on a whim. That's something that should arrest our hearts. That's something that should get our attention whenever David just haphazardly stumbled into this. He stayed home. He said, Joab can handle it. Oh, uh, it's a nice warm evening. I want to go out on the roof. Oh, he's pretty. And he watches for a while. Hey, go get her for me. And it all unravels. And that short time of temporary pleasure haunted him for years and years and years after that. And it's not because God was doing that to punish him. It's because that's what sin does. This is why Jesus' payment on the cross was necessary. This is why God hates sin so badly is because of the consequences and the effects that it works out in the lives of God's people. And so whenever God says thou shalt not, it's because he doesn't want 10 chapters afterward of the consequences and the fallout from you doing what he says thou shalt not. He says if you do this, then you're going to hurt for years afterward. Well, God, you're being mean to me saying I can't do it. Isn't that what the world says? God says, no, I don't want this to be your story. And so whenever we see David, just wrapping this up here, David is at the highest of highs. He's riding on victory. He is reigning over the people. He has defeated all of the enemies. He has amassed riches. He has united the nation. He has done all of these things. And I'll tell you, success and victory is going to be one of your most dangerous places as a Christian. We think that the devil, whenever he wants to defeat us, he's going to bring us to the bottom like Job, right? We think that the devil is going to bring us to the place of defeat, that he's going to cause us to be in the lowest of lows. No, one of the most dangerous places that you'll ever be as a Christian is whenever everything is going well because you'll take your eyes off God and say, I don't need him anymore. I'm doing fine without him. And that is when you will fail. That is when you'll fall. That's whenever Satan will get his hooks in and pull you away. What happened with Adam and Eve? We always go back to them, right? Just like... David standing up on his roof of his palace and looking out. Eve looked up on the fruit. She desired it. She took it and damned all of humanity. Right? And David went up on his roof. He looked at the fruit. 
He desired it. He took it and damned his whole family. Not in eternity, but in struggles and problems and fighting and bickering and killing and murdering and raping and right? And if you even go beyond that, look at Solomon's life. Do you not think that Solomon reaped some of the consequences? He was the son of David and Bathsheba. Do you think he reaped some of the consequences whenever he accumulated 700 wives, 300 concubines? Hey, well, my mom was just another wife to David, so why not just get another wife to Solomon? Right? And so anyway, David is a cautionary tale for us that whenever... God's will isn't coming about as quick as we'd like for it to. Wait, be faithful, behave ourselves wisely. Whenever God brings about his will in your life, whenever he brings you to a place of victory, do not allow that to go to your head. Don't get overconfident and don't let your guard down because Satan will still attack you at the top. He has no problem with knocking the prop out from under you. And so there's no place for us to get too comfortable because as long as we're on this earth, we have an enemy that is seeking whom he may devour. And David got bit even whenever he was on the top of the heap. So with that being said, does anyone have any any comments or anything to add to what we've looked at today? That's kind of a, a heavy lesson here, looking at David's failures. But it should be sobering because if David can go from the top of the heap to the bottom, he can too. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we do thank you for the this opportunity that we have to be in church. We thank you so much for uh, the lessons that we find in Scripture, Lord. Lord, may we uh, learn from the mistakes of others and not make the same mistakes. Lord, I know that it's it's a, a lot easier uh, whenever we don't have to go through the lessons they've already learned. And Lord, I just pray, ask you that you would uh, help us to think on this, meditate on it, take these, uh, these dangers seriously and not fall headlong into them like David did. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.